Welcome to the Church 214 podcast. We're glad that you've joined us today. We hope that you enjoy today's message. And if you'd like to find out more about our church, please visit our website at church214.org. Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou, Romeo? Deny thy father and refuse thy name. Oh, if thou wilt not, be sworn, my love, and I'll no longer be a Capulet. Shall I hear this more, or shall I speak to this? Tis but thy name that is my enemy. Thou art thyself, though not to Montague. What's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other word would smell as sweet. Hey, hey, good morning. Romeo and Juliet. <laughs> so, what is in a name? That's the question that was asked. Hopefully most of you are familiar with this scene from Shakespeare, um, Romeo and Juliet. So, what in the line... What's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other word or name would smell as sweet. Shakespeare, or the bard, would be saying that it really doesn't matter what someone or something is called because the material essence of that thing matters more than its name. However, Isaiah 55, 8 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. I like the tales from Shakespeare, but I love the truth from Scripture more. So God's word tells us that names do matter. They have great significance. Names describe or reveal something about a person's character. They become personal. Names make things personal. Um, there are many examples, and you know, in the Bible of names being changed or given to people to describe their character or their potential. So, several months ago, I started really thinking about this I Am series. It's, well, I actually started thinking about more of who am I? You know, like, um, so many songs, so many devotions tell me that I am a child of God. I am this or I am that. And building me up and it feels so good. So when we hear those things, we tend to turn to the New Testament and hear Jesus' seven statements of I am. Things like, um, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the That's life. Right. I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. I am the gate. I am the light of the world. And if that, that wasn't seven, I'm sorry. <laughs> There's seven of them. <laughs> There's seven. Um, so, and that's all good and it's great. But before Jesus was God, when did God say, I am? And what does that mean when he said, I am? When God says, I am, I wanted to know more about that. I wanted to dig further into what God says he is and how that affects who I am. God has a name, or actually has several names in the Bible, that he unveils to us in his word. These names reveal, they describe, and they define who God is as well as aspects of his character, his promises, and his authority and power. We're going to focus on actually one name today, 
Um, but some that fall under that name, the name I am. So let's pray before we get into this any deeper. Father, we come to you right now, and we want you to we want to continue with this worship mode we, we've been in, and we want to have you open our hearts, open our minds to these ideas, these concepts of you, of knowing you more deeply and holy. We ask you to speak through us, not with our words, but use our, your words through us. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So the question Shakespeare asks, what's in a name? Well, for instance, <clears throat> the name Michael means who is like God. Sorry. And, <laughs> and the name to. Sherry means beloved, loved one, or darling. Darling. I love it. <laughs> so, but most likely, like for me, I wasn't named because of the meaning, but probably because of the preference of sound. See, I'm the youngest, and I have a brother, Gary, a brother or sister, Mary, Anne, and so Sherry seemed to fit. So, but even if I was named, the, with a meaning behind it, it doesn't mean that I always live up to that meaning. So, but what is the name of God our Father? What does that mean? I am. So let's get into the story here where we actually first uh, hear God say I am. And we're going to go to Exodus 3, but I want to do just a quick setup because we don't have time to read all of that uh, preface. Before Moses the uh, Hebrew nation was in Egypt, and they were there for 300-plus years. Uh, Abram, who became Abraham, was promised uh, a promised land from God, and that promise still held true. So after Moses was raised in Pharaoh's home and then he was exiled, he was in the land of Midian working as a shepherd. And that's where this kind of starts to set up. He's shepherding this flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, and he looks over and he sees a bush on fire, but it isn't being consumed. It's kind of odd, so he starts to approach it, and God speaks to him and says, this is holy ground, so he stops and he falls down, and we'll pick it up in verse 13. Then Moses said to God, oh, I'm sorry, I forgot to mention, God said, you are going to be the one that goes leads the, the Hebrew nation out of Egypt, and he's like, what is this all about? I'm, I'm a shepherd. So then Moses says to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent you, me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God says to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, who they knew, the God of Isaac and Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So God says to Moses, I am who I am. And that's vague, but not. In their language, they would have understood some parts of that, but it was new, it was whole. The people may have been familiar with, with other gods, gods of the Egyptians or the, the people that lived around there, and they were gods to created things, the sun, the moon, um, anything to do with weather or fertility, they worshiped those created things. They also would have probably known this god of their father, Jacob, or Abraham, or Isaac, but only as the god almighty. 
So we're going to get into more of an, a full encompassing name. So God, I am, is so much more. The name I am encompasses all of these attributes of God. I am is complete. I am, it's, if you take a picture like of the sun, you can't directly look at it because the magnificence, the brightness is too sharp for you too. It'll hurt you. But what comes out of that, what we feel, what we know, the life it gives, all of these attributes, they hit everywhere all the time at the same time. So we're going to just touch on that and try to help you grasp that magnitude of his magnificence as we go through this. So up until Moses, God's speaking to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, but he gives himself the name of his attributes, such as, I am your shield, I am God Almighty. But to Moses, he's more personal, and he says, I am. That's my name, I am. <clears throat> so, we have a picture of a name tag. Hello, my name is I am. <laughs> so really, I mean, you look at that and you're like, well, what kind of name is that? Can it's you easy imagine? to remember. Right? Yeah. <laughs> you could shorten it. I'm. I'm. <clears throat> so, um, can you imagine Moses at this point? I mean, he goes to these people and he says, hey guys, I, you know, I come to lead you to this really good land out of this oppression. And um, by the way, if you want to know the um, the credentials of who's sending me. His name's I am. I mean, uh, anyway. Do the next slide. Um, yeah, the next slide is a, a, a picture of I am in Hebrew, the writing of I am. So, <clears throat> the name I am means self-existent, creator and sustainer of all things, immutable and eternal. If you look at this word, um, the Hebrew language reads right to left instead of left to right, but it's <clears throat> eight, I'm sorry, YHVH, or the English translation is YHWH, and it's translated Yahweh or Jehovah. In present tense, it is I am. In future tense, it is to be. So it means I am who I am or I will be who I will be, not to get confused with Popeye. <laughs> Popeye is I am what I am, and that's all that I am. That's all Popeye can be. Okay, so earlier in this passage uh, of Exodus, Moses sees this burning bush, and it's not being consumed, and he approaches it, and he encounters this presence of God, and he falls on his face out of fear, that, that fear of its... Um, it's, this is where I want to get to, I want to kind of camp out there in this awe or reverence fear of God. So you, we see, we, we said earlier that the I am is like that sun with its radiant beams emanating from it. And I'll mention some of these briefly, but it's easy to fall into the practice of knowing about these attributes and not really being affected by them. We have to be impacted. I, I just... As we were worshiping, I started to cry because that second song is what we're talking about here. You know, everything that when we come to him, that, that feeling of just being overwhelmed, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that. 
so I'm burdened by this. I come, I told Chris and Heather the other night, I, I, as long as I've been in the church and as much as I study, I'm still burdened by how little I'm impacted when I talk about God. And I want to get to where that just hits me. It undoes me when I talk about this God. And I think that's what we're talking about with Moses. Um, so anyway, just briefly, a few of these attributes. God is self-existent. God is the only one that can say, I am. Without him, we can say it, but we can't say it. But he's the only one that can truly say that. He exists in and of himself. He doesn't, he's self-sufficient, so he doesn't need us. Need is not in his vocabulary other than we, he has it for us. We need him. God is infinite. He's immutable. He never changes. You can't imagine this, but he's never not been God. You know, so he can't get more God or less God. He's just always been that way. Um, he's divine in his omniscience. He knows everything. So we wouldn't say a thing like he can't learn anything, but that's the truth because he, he knows it all. He already knows everything. He's omnipotent. He has all power. He's uh, omnipresent. He's universally present. And so I am farther away from Sherry right now, but God is never farther away or closer to me than he is right now. He is universally present. Uh, there's a few others. Uh, he's, he's good. He's just. He shows mercy. He's graceful. He is love. He's the definition of love. But the one I want to spend a little bit more time on is holiness. Holiness, um, in its root word of the Hebrew word, word is gadesh. And we are familiar with this one, and it's set apart or sacred, and that is true. But there's a, a German Anglo-Saxon root word also that means whole or well. It's halig. It means uh, not uninjured. So he's not affected by sin like we are. So we are injured, and he cannot be in our presence. So all of these things, if we start to grasp these ideas and we realize that we're uh, corrupt, we start to fall away, and then we'll get this picture of falling down on our face in his presence. Now, Isaiah talks about this in Isaiah 6, and he gets a vision of the Holy One, of the Lord, and the one that he hears in this vision is calling out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So it's not just him in, in this little place by the burning bush. It's the whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations and the thresh, thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me. So Isaiah, when he speaks, he says, woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. So he realizes that he is not clean. And, and there's this clean presence, this holy presence that is, he's undone. It tears him up to look at God in this vision. And that's what I want you to grasp. I want you to take away from this because we need to start there with this attitude in the presence of God. We also hear about how we kind of respond if we read in Psalm uh, 96, 9. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. So think about that magnificence of his holiness. Uh, back in Isaiah, I, I missed it, but there's three holies there. It's not just one holy. It's holy times three. It's, it's this magnitude of holiness that God is 
I, I could keep going on. In fact, that's what we do for eternity is we keep learning about the magnificence of God. So anyway, back full circle to Moses. He falls on his face in the presence of God, but it doesn't stay there because then God starts this process of reaching out to him to use him. So, Just as I am. Hey, well, that's, hey, a, good that's a good title good song. song yes. <laughs> no, just as the name I am <clears throat> is holy, it's also personal, like I said, at the same time. I am is God's personal name. So it must have that attribute in it, too. It's being personal, being holy. <clears throat> we ran across the perfect example of God and his holiness working through a, a personal relationship. And I guess this is the, where the storytelling comes in. So um, <clears throat> a couple months ago, we were in Colorado visiting our daughter. And that Sunday morning, I got up and I read my verse for the day. And it was Psalm 138, 7. It's, though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies. Your right hand delivers me. <clears throat> okay, I'm a girly girl, but I kind of like football, and I have lots of boys. So I immediately got this vision or this picture in my head of a football player. It's the football player holding the ball close to himself in his right hand and with his left stretching his arm out to stop the opponent. I asked Mike, and he said, that's called a stiff arm, or <laughs> the look of the Heisman Trophy without the leg. So anyway, keep that in mind. But a crazy thing about that was we go to church that morning with, her, with Michaela, and they actually had a visiting pastor at their church, and he happened to be a former NFL player. What? That's a God thing. It also <laughs> was. So he used lots of football analogies, but he spoke of God, our Father, as our shield, making the image of one, Psalm 138 come alive, especially to me. So um, the funny thing was is that when I started studying this, the very first I am in the Bible is Genesis 15.1. It says, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Yes. So, man, yeah. I'm running with this. No <laughs> pun intended. Sorry. <laughs> okay, I will quit with the football analogies. Okay. Okay. So, we are going to turn to Luke 15. And we're going to talk about the parable of the prodigal son. In this parable, we see God is our shield. All right? So many of us are familiar. You've probably read it, heard it. You've probably heard it, especially Sunday school. As a kid, you might have heard it. And you just get this beautiful picture of this father running to his son, saving his son. And that's, that is awesome. I hope this time when you hear it, that something just speaks new, speaks to you guys. So if you don't remember, I'm not going to read it verbatim, but I just wanted to kind of recap it. We remember a younger son goes to his wealthy father and asks for his inheritance. It must have been pretty hurtful for the father. It's kind of <laughs> like saying, I wish it. you were dead. Right. You know, so. The father gives it to him, and the son takes off a few days later to a far-off country. He squanders all that he got from his father. He squanders it on reckless living. And now 
he has nothing. And the country he's in, a famine hits. So he's hungry, he has nothing, and so he sold himself to work on a pig farm. Now, this was very, very degrading for a Jewish man, Jewish person, because remember, pig, swine, were the worst sort of unclean animals. So he's now feeding pigs, and he's still so hungry. He longs to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, but he can't even do that because humans cannot digest those pods. So he was in a very bad way. Verse 17, it comes and says, but when he finally came to his senses, he was reminded or he remembered that although he was dying of hunger, his father's servants had more to eat than he did. So he made a plan. I'll go back to my father. I am going to repent and offer myself up to work as a servant for my father because he then believed he no longer was worthy to be called a son, to have his father's last name or his father's name. So I just want to sit in Luke 15, 20, one verse, one verse that speaks so much. <clears throat> and he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. I'm almost undone when I read that. Um, this Honestly, this parable is probably the most familiar parable of all Christ's parables. We do know that it is the longest and most detailed, but there are so many teaching points throughout this whole parable that Christ tells, but we're going to sit in this one verse. Okay. When I was studying this, I read a commentary explaining how the story was most likely a very popular um, a very popular lesson to teach, or like a fable. So in this fable at the time, the ending was completely opposite of what we're used to as in the parable. So in the fable, the son probably um, would have just remained lost. Or if he would have tried to come back to the community, he would have been shamed or rejected and wasn't able to come back in. So a story that was probably passed on from generation to generation as a deterrent, a deterrent from showing disrespect to a Jewish father or a humiliating family. Okay, so we have some help from, my, um, from some of my guys um, to illustrate this story. So I'm not going to just tell it, we're going to illustrate it. So they're... they're <laughs> okay. <laughs> Okay, Jewish custom was that if a Jewish son lost his inheritance among Gentiles and then tried to return home, the community would perform a ceremony called the kazaza. That's basically shaming the son and cutting him off or, object, or um, rejecting him from the community. The elders of the community would keep a watch for him to return so they could meet him before entering the village to perform the ceremony. So with this bit of information, it just blows me away. It blows me away because I am this holy, this God that encompasses so much, shares a story with a different ending through Christ, but puts himself as that personal attribute, as the Father. So 
who is like God? Okay. So this speaks, this verse speaks of a dad who is watching also. So we got the elders watching, but we've got dad watching. It says, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. Guys, his father didn't just walk past the window one day and look down the lane and say, I wonder who that is coming. No, 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 no. I am sure, I am so sure that this dad lived every day in a hope that his son would return. And I believe that that dad had his tunic tucked in. I believe he had his newest, best pair of running sandals on. And I believe he kept a constant watch for his son. His father saw him. This guy shows another attribute of the name of God, Elroy, the God who sees. Can you imagine the leap in that daddy's heart? Excitement to see his son a long way off. He knew. He knew his son's walk. He knew his son was coming back. But fear, I bet fear rushed through him too. He took off and he ran. You don't have to tell yet. Running in this custom or in this time was absolutely not done in Jewish culture. For a man in his position, it would have humiliated and shamed the father. So why would he have run? To get to his son first. Because this kazaza ceremony involved the elders of the community meeting him meeting the son before he enters the village to perform the ceremony. And what would happen is they would take a big clay pot and they would throw it in front of him, basically stating he was no longer invited. He was no longer welcome. He was rejected. He was shamed. He was no longer welcome in that community. And not only did they do this, they would yell at him, yell and say horrible things to make sure that he understood he wasn't included. He wasn't um, welcome. So with that in mind, imagine that father running with everything to get to his son before the elders got to his son. He needed to be his son's shield. Okay, I don't run. Wait a second, I don't run. She doesn't run. My sticker is 0.0, and I am proud of it. I absolutely despise it. However, if needed, I would run, I would fly, I would leap from tall buildings if anything were to harm one of my children. So with that passion, with that mama bear passion in mind, I kind of get this father, but it's still so much more. I'm saying this could not have looked like a Hallmark welcome home. Hey, like, how you doing? Yeah, no, no. No, it, it did not look like that at all. Okay, one more football analogy. It was a full-on tackle. Not to knock him down, but to cover him. (laughs) Okay, you know they enjoy this. (laughs) Okay. The father embraced him. 
shielded him from the shards of the shattered pot. Maybe even in his embrace, he would have held him so close and tight that he would have blocked out any sound from the yelling and shaming that would have come. But instead, the father had taken the full shame that should have fallen on his son and clearly showed the whole community that his son was welcome. Now, friends, I would be remiss if I didn't point out that this is what God sent Jesus to do for me and you. We come to our senses, and on our way to repent, God meets us at full speed, shields us, and embraces us, sending Jesus to take on every sliver and shard of punishment so we won't be rejected. So in order to develop this picture a little bit more, we're going to read from Psalm 18 a few select verses. But I want you to picture one of the attributes of God as being just. So there is a punishment for our sin, and he is holy. We cannot be in his presence unless we run to God to be with God. We, we go to him, and he pays that price, and he brings us to it. So listen to these words. We don't have it posted up there, so you don't have to read along. And this is from the Passion Translation. Verse 6. I cried out to you in my distress, the delivering God, and from your temple throne you heard my troubled cry. My sobs came right into your heart, and you turned your face to rescue me. The earth itself shivered and shook. It reeled and rocked before him. As the mountains trembled, they melted away. For his anger was kindled, burning on my behalf. Fierce flames leapt from his mouth, erupting with blazing, burning coals as smoke and fire encircled him. He stretched heaven's curtain open and came to my defense. Swiftly he rode to earth as the stormy sky was, was lowered. He rode on a chariot of thunder clouds amidst the thick darkness, a cherub his steed as he swooped down, soaring on the wings of spirit wind, wrapped and hidden in the thick cloud darkness. His thunder tabernacle surrounded him. He hid himself in the mystery darkness. The dense rain clouds were, were his garments. Suddenly the brilliance of his presence broke through with lightning bolts and with mighty storm from heaven. Like a tempest dropping coals of fire, the Lord thundered. The great God above, every God, spoke with his thunder voice from the skies. What fearsome hailstones and flashes of fire were before him. He released his lightning arrows and routed my foes. See how they ran and scattered in fear? Then with his mighty roar, he laid bare the foundations of the earth, uncovering the secret source of the seas. The hidden depths of land and sea were exposed by the hurricane blast of his hot breath. He then reached down from heaven all the way from the sky to the sea, he reached down into my darkness and rescued me and drew me to himself, taking me from the depths of my despair. Verse 19 says, His love broke open the way, and he brought me into a beautiful, broad place. He rescued me because his delight is in me. Verse 35 says, you have given me, me the shield of your salvation, and your right hand supported me, and your gentleness made me great. The great I am, holy and our shield. 
As we close, this parable of the prodigal son reveals the desperate situation the son was in by being separated from his father, that holiness. We too are separated from our holy father. This nature or of sinlessness or wholeness cannot coexist with sin. But our Holy Father desires a personal relationship with each one of us. He revealed his personal name, I am. He revealed it. He invites us to repent, to turn to him, to live in his presence, taking his name and restoring our sonship. We can take on the name of our Father. Unlike Romeo, who was willing to give up his father's name, if we're willing to repent, obey, and come into his presence, he gives us his name, I am. In fact, it's a name we can't deny. He is there. In Acts 17, verse 28, he says, In him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we indeed are his offspring. So, as God's children, we can boldly and confidently declare his name. We can declare, I am a child of God. I am forgiven. I am chosen. I am called. I am loved. I am holy. I am righteous. I am justified. I am victorious. I am enough.